husbands filled it out and didn't include them. So if husbands, if you filled out a card and neglected to put your wife's name, there's cards in the back and you can fill those out and an elder will contact you this week, arrange a meeting, we'll hear your story, get to know you better, and then you can be a church member. The other card you'll find at the back table is the welcome card. That is for those of you that are new, that are just visiting. You're just checking out ECC Off-Island. We are honored by your presence. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We want to get to know you as well. And so if you're a guest, do not fill out a membership card. It's, you just, you're just checking it out. We want to talk to you. So do a welcome card, and we'll meet, and we'll just get to know you better. It is truly, I love the week after Thanksgiving because it marks the beginning of the Christmas season. And so in the Levant home, Christmas is a really big deal. Now, the home that I grew up in, it was, but my wife, as you know, if you get married, just had a wedding here at 8 o'clock this morning. Um, when you get married, you kind of inherit some parts of your wife or your husband's background. You kind of merge together, and you have kind of a new one. And it, now in my home, I mean, we celebrate everything. Like it was Abby's birthday. She turned six yesterday. And it's just a big day-long celebration. And, and so for Christmas, with it being a month out, every night we sing Christmas carols and we watch Christmas movies, Christmas music in the car. We paint and eat, or I eat, the Christmas cookies. We, we have all kinds of festivities. And the kids and Bonnie are Christmas socks. And it's just, it, our house has Christmas stuff everywhere. We got the tree up. And so we do nothing small. If, if we do it, we're doing it. And so that's how the Levants roll. And, and with, <laughs> for better or worse, right? Um, but what's really great about Christmas is not so much all of those things. And all of those things are good. It gets you in the festive mood and all that's good. But all of the festivities are meant to make sure that we keep our focus and not to be distracted by the festivities uh, that come with the, the holiday season, with Christmas, they're meant to focus our minds on the purpose, on the main idea of Christmas. You see, Christmas is not about all those festive things. Christmas is about our God in heaven who made a promise. You see, many centuries ago, when humanity had plunged itself into the depths of sinfulness, our God spoke, and he made a promise that one day he would send his Messiah, his anointed one, that he would come, and then he would redeem us from our sin. And Christmas is first and foremost about this promise that God made to his people. And so we're launching a teaching series beginning today. It runs for six weeks. It'll go through the month of December. It'll also include Christmas Eve. If you've looked in your bulletin, you know it's like, hey, that's something new. Yes, we try new things around here. And so what we're trying, something totally new, is we want to get our faith family together at Christmas Eve. Now, if you're out of town, we understand that. But I also know, like myself, many of you can't leave town for finances, work schedule, whatever it may be, and you're here in Abu Dhabi. If you plan to be in town, for Christmas, we invite you to join the faith family at Christmas Eve at 6.30. It's early enough in the evening. We'll be done by about 8. And so if you want to go home and celebrate open presents, or some people do Christmas Eve, and that's a bigger deal than Christmas Day, it's early enough to do that. 
It's a family-friendly service. We won't have kids out. They'll be in the service the whole time. We'll sing Christmas carols. We'll, we'll hear one of the six parts of this teaching series. It's going to be a very special time for our faith family Christmas Eve. It'll be the Mafrock Hotel. Um, and so notes in your, there in your, in your bulletin. You can look at that. We'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. But what we're talking about for the six weeks, including Christmas Eve, is a series called He Promised. And we begin this today by looking in Genesis chapter 1. You see, as we get our minds ready for Christmas, the message of Christmas really is the message of the gospel. Christmas is not about Santa Claus or even about presents. Christmas is about the gospel. And we're going to learn that over these next few weeks. You see, it's very important that we understand something when we talk about the Bible and learning about it and talking about how God has made a promise in this series He promised. It's important to understand that the Bible is not random. The Bible is not a random collection of, if you will, just kind of disjointed stories. A lot of people think the Bible is nothing more than just a random collection of moral teachings or a random collection of just different promises God makes to us, or just a random collection of really cool superhero-type characters. And you just have to kind of go through and pick and choose and just kind of randomly find something good to read. It's not. This is not random. There is nothing disjointed about the Bible. It is not a collection of cool stories like Aesop's fables. It is not just good morality. Now, there is teaching in here, but it is not disconnected. This book that we hold in our hands, that we are privileged to have, has one theme, one story, one author, one main character, and his name is Jesus. And from Genesis to Revelation, there's one character, and it's the single story of redemption. And it is the promise that God has made to us. It's one. It's singular. And it's very important that we understand this because the Bible has continuity. It's one. And so we're going to be looking at how it all fits together. And this theme that runs through from Genesis to Revelation, there's many different themes that you could look at. But one in particular that we'll look at for the next six weeks is the theme of promise. For God has made a promise. And we see it like a strand through a tapestry that you can see it all fitting together. So let's begin by looking at the main idea. So if you have your notes, you can pull that out. Hopefully you have a pen or a pencil to write with. And the first two blanks, so the main idea that we're going to be looking at this morning is that God has a plan to display his glorious character. So God has a first blank is plan. He has a plan to, I'm sorry, first blank is display. He has a plan to display his glorious character. Now, I know what you're thinking. This guy has been talking about promise and how, how God has a single promise that he is accomplishing and fulfilling throughout all of the Bible. And now he's talking about a plan. Well, is it a plan or is it a promise? Which one is it? Yes, it's both. Plan and promise are basically two sides of the same coin. And so the way this works is God has a plan. His plan is to display his glory, and he has promised to accomplish it through his Messiah, through Jesus. 
So his plan is to display his infinite beauty and glory, and his promise is, I will accomplish my plan, and I will do it through a human being. I will do it through my anointed one, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who came as a baby that we prepare for for the next few weeks. And so as we look at this theme of promise, that is how God's accomplishing his plan, let's turn to the first page. Let's go to page one, Genesis chapter one. Because if we're going to talk about Genesis to Revelation, and we will over the next few weeks, and everything in between. Now, granted, we don't have time to go through every single verse, but by overview, clearly, we need to begin at page 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how it started. This is what God is about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You can't just read that so quickly and think, Oh, yeah, that's for children. That's what the kids in the shisha rooms are studying, learning about creation and the animals and how cute. No, it is not just for kids. This is God's word. Yes, it's for kids, but it's also for adults and everything in between. Old and young, everyone needs to understand this. If you look at this and look at what it's saying, God is displaying how incredible he is, how majestic he is, how powerful he is, how wise he is, how infinitely glorious he is. God simply spoke. That's all he did. And then the planets were flung into space orbiting around the star called the sun. God simply spoke, and everything that is came into being. God simply said. This shows his power, his wisdom, his intelligence. This shows his glory, and he's displaying it. He's all-powerful. And if you jump to the end of chapter 1, verse 31, chapter 1, so we see chapter 1 begins with God created. The chapter ends. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Listen to that. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And so he created in six days by simply speaking the power of his word. And so we see here in these handful of verses, we see that God is powerful, that God is eternal. He's there at the very beginning. We see that he is good because everything that he's made is good. We see that he is holy, that he is righteous. We, we begin to get a picture of who this God is by just reading the creation account. It's really remarkable if you stop and read the words. Now, he also creates humans. And if you read in the same chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, a few verses earlier, he says, so he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Listen to this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing 
that moves on the earth. So again, God blessed. You see his goodness in creation and what he does. And he creates man, not like an ape. The evolutionists are wrong. We are unique. We have the image of God, the ability to think and relate and create and relate to God himself. Animals don't do those things. And then as the image bearer of God, man was made to represent God on earth. And so when the fish and the birds and the trees and the whales, and they see humans, they see, oh, well, that's what God is like. And when we see each other, what we're saying is, oh, well, that's what God looks like, a reflection of him. We're made to bear his image and so that creation sees humanity and sees the image of God in heaven who is good and holy and wise and amazing. And we have that privilege. If you just stop and think about that for a second, it is an awesome privilege, but it's also a responsibility because God gives them instructions. He tells them to multiply and subdue the earth. Does that mean to have babies? Yes, it does. So if you get married, you should have babies. But it's not just have children. It is that, but it's more. When he's talking about subduing the earth, a lot of times this is referred to in theological circles as the cultural mandate, that we have been mandated, given instructions by God to subdue the earth. And that is more than just have babies. The cultural mandate says, go create culture. Go create language. Go invent music. Go create art. Go discover the sciences. Go have a civilization. Go and harness the earth. Go and do. Go and represent me on the earth and enjoy me, I'll enjoy you, you enjoy each other, I've given you everything for you to have, now you represent me, go rule the earth as my king, as my representative, and go create. Because that's what God does. God creates, humans create. The difference is humans create with materials. And so we make music with instruments. We make buildings with you know, mortar and bricks and wood and so forth. And so we create art with canvas and paint. And so humans create like God creates as his image bearers, but we do so with raw materials. God creates out of nothing. Yet, we still create. And we rule the world as we were supposed to. And so here's what you're seeing developing here is God has created Adam, and Adam's job is to really just enjoy God, enjoy this good earth that God created. And, and then Adam is meant to see God's beauty as reflected in the created order. And then he is to teach others to then recognize God's beauty and then to respond with worship. If you've ever gone somewhere that was in nature that is just so beautiful that you like like you gasp in because you, you saw the site the mountain or whatever it is and you are just in awe of what's been created the point of that is for you to respond with worship 
when you see what God has done, our hearts are meant to bow and to respond to God with worship because it's a reflection of how amazing and beautiful he is. And so Adam is created as the head of of humanity to represent God on earth, representing him as his image bearer and lead humanity to worship God. This is referred to as a covenant relationship. It's a covenant, but is it a one-to-one? Is there equality in this relationship with God and man? No, it's not equal. Who's in charge? God's in charge. And if you jump to chapter 2, you see this vividly in the same passage. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, this was before there was sin. What was man created to do even before there was sin? To work. Men, you were made to work. The problem is that because of sin, it feels like work, and it's hard, and it's corrupted, but man was made not to run around naked. No, that's not what just have fun in the garden and just prance around. No, he was made to work, create, build civilization, lead people to worship God, to go do what humans do, but to do it without sin, clearly. But he was made to work. And then verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so what you see here is God is clearly in charge. He is clearly the sovereign. God is the creator the sustainer of the world, and he is the boss, all right? God is giving out the instructions in this relationship. Yes, it's a covenant. Yes, they've pledged together, but man is designed to worship God. Man reflects the beauty of God, not the other way around. God is the beginning, and man serves God. But in the process, Man gets to enjoy God. Because you see that in chapter 3, God was walking in the cool of the evening with them. They had a relationship. Now, Adam was called to obey God. He was given a task to represent God. But it was done through relationship, this covenant, this agreement, with stipulations. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. It's repeated over and over and over in the Bible. So God is saying, I'm your God. I created you. I love you. I'm going to share everything good with you, and I'll be with you, and you go represent me, represent me well to the earth, and it's going to be heaven. This is basically heaven. That's what you have here. God right there with his people, but no sin. Man able to accomplish what he was made to do, to worship God with no sin getting in the way. Nothing hindering their relationship with Adam and Eve. There was no divorce. There, were, there was no death. There were no hospitals. It didn't exist because they were in paradise. But you must not forget that Adam was given the instructions to obey. And disobedience, sin, has a penalty. And the penalty that God describes here is death. On the day that you breach 
this covenant, on the day that you violate our relationship, on the day that you commit treason and betray my trust, if you ever do that, you must die because I'm a holy God. And so I cannot be in the presence of anything that is sinful. And so let's look in this relationship in your notes. There's three characteristics that God is displaying that applied not just to Adam, but it applies to us. The first one, what we're seeing here already, is that God displays his, number one, holiness. So in your blanks, he, he shows his holiness through judgment. God is completely pure and holy. This is important. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan has always been opposing God's people, and he did so in the very beginning. He has always been in opposition to God and to God's people, and he does so here. Now I'm going to give you the next blank, all right? We're talking about God's holiness and his judgments for just a couple of minutes. Let's talk about the essence, the root, if you will, the core of what sin is in your blanks. The first one, it's questioning God's word. Remember, God's word is what he used to create the world, and it's through his word that he's he's redeeming the world. But we see here that sin at its essence is questioning God's word. How do we see that? Well, verse verse 1, second half, and then verse 2 and 3. And so he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Right here, you know what you see with Eve? You know what she's doing? She is arguing with Satan. She is literally debating. Like, why would you debate God's word? Why would you even question God's word? But she's questioning it because here she's even adding, God never said don't touch it, God said don't eat it. But she's adding her own interpretation to it. And she's saying, well, Satan, you don't understand. No, 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 no. It's not like that. Like she's debating. God said don't eat it, but Satan is twisting it. He is making her think that maybe God's not trustworthy. Did God really say you can't have anything good? And she's saying, no, he said that you you can eat, just not of this one. But she should have just shut him down and walked away. But instead, she lingered and is talking and debating and rationalizing and questioning. See, this is how this works in everyday life, all right? I want you to picture a young couple, all right? I don't know, late teens, maybe early 20s. All right, and this young man, this young lady, they're in love. And because they're young, their estrogen and testosterone is flowing heavy through their bloodstream. And so they have these very natural sexual urges. And so they would like to go ahead and consummate, but they're not married yet. They're just dating. But this couple starts to think, well, we're basically engaged. I mean, I haven't bought a ring yet. I don't have a job. I don't have any future or any prospects but we're basically already engaged and we really love each other. And, and so why can we have sex? Is it really, is it so bad? And they're rationalizing. 
they, they start to question God's word. Or let's pick on the young people, we'll pick up someone else, maybe a, a married couple, a little bit older, a little bit wiser. They've been married for a while and they live in Abu Dhabi, they're far from home. They're far from their home country and their friends and their family, and living here is hard. Amen? Or is it just me? No? It's hard. It's hard living here. And you think to yourself, well, I deserve a better car. I deserve a better wardrobe. I deserve more conveniences. But you can't afford them. You really can't. And if you were on your monthly written budget, you could see that you can't afford that car that you want. And you can't see you can't afford to go out to eat four times a week. You can't afford it, not, not reasonably. But this couple begins to rationalize. And well, did God really say that I can't have Alexis? Did God really say that I can't go, you know, all over the world and blow my money on vacations or cars or villas or clothes or going out or you name it? But we begin to rationalize and think, well, I deserve this. I live in the desert, for crying out loud. I live where it's 54 degrees in the summer. I have earned this convenience. And we, we think that way. We really do. And we, we begin to question God's word. We begin to rationalize. And before we know it, we are in bed or we are buying things that we shouldn't be buying. And we're in sin. And our heart begins to drift away from Christ very easily. It can happen quickly, though. Questioning God's word, it's never up for debate. God's word is never up for discussion. The essence of sin, number one, as we mentioned, is questioning. Number two, it's questioning God's character. Second, essence of sin is questioning his word and questioning his character. Verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, now he's just lying to her. He says, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Listen to that. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is so important for us to understand. Satan was putting the doubt in her mind that God is trustworthy, questioning God's word and now questioning God's character and saying, God is keeping something good from you. Why do you worship that God? Why do we even trust him? He is keeping something from you. He knows that that is good for you and God doesn't want you to have it. And he says, instead, you can be the God of your own little world. You can be like God. That's what he tells her. Let's read verse 6, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more. Verse 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it of the fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, a lot of things strike me. One is I'm so disappointed in that boy in this story because he's not a man. Adam was being a boy because a man would have said to a serpent, get out of here. 
Stop messing with my woman. I am the head of humanity. I represent God himself. I have been tasked to rule this world, to display his glory. You are lying and you are questioning my God's word and his character. Get out of here. But he was checked out. He was out playing golf. He was out playing the desert with his camels. He was out watching too much TV. He wasn't there for his woman when she needed him the most. She is trying to figure this out and she's not sure. And, and her boy of a husband, not a man, just watches it happen. And how many men do that? How many men stand by and watch their wives struggling and trying to figure it out and trying to make sense of life, and the husband is just out to lunch. He's just checked out. That was Adam, checked out. He was right there. He watches her struggle. She eats. She gives. He's, okay, sure. And he eats of the fruit, too. And such a simple act at its root was treason. This isn't just something small. It was a betrayal of God's trust and love and goodness. You see, a lot of times, the issue isn't that God is keeping things from you. It's just you're not ready yet. It's timing. Again, to talk about that one young couple in this story here. All right? It's not that sex is bad. Sex is a blessing. It's a gift from God when you're married. Before that, it's not to be used because you're not ready yet. If you're not married, you're not ready for that level of intimacy. You should only experience that when you are ready. The issue is timing. Adam and Eve would have had the opportunity to eat of this tree in the middle of the garden. They would have had that chance. When they had grown in their relationship with God, God would have said, here, take, eat of this fruit. You're ready now. The issue is timing. But they weren't patient. They weren't content. They wanted more. And by reaching for the fruit when it wasn't time, they were grasping for Godhood. Listen to this. This is important. They weren't just grasping for, for the fruit. They were grasping for sovereignty. They were grasping to be in charge. They were grasping to say, I want to worship me and not worship God. They doubted God's goodness and trustworthiness. But this can happen to any of us because life can be hard and disappointing. And when you're in pain, when life has been unkind to you, or when things just aren't working out the way you thought they would, when you live here for now five years, when you hope no more than two, and you're still stuck in Abu Dhabi, and you're disappointed, or your marriage isn't turning out the way you thought, or your kids aren't turning out the way you thought, or your finances aren't turning out the way you thought, or whatever it is in life, and you're disappointed, and you look in the mirror and say, man, this is not how I thought it was going to be. And when we experience disappointment, and we all do in our own way, when we're disappointed and we have this pain, what we tend to do is what Adam and Eve did, and we want to take control and we want to fix it. And we want to be in control of our lives. And we want to be the one who is sovereign, who makes the rules and calls the shots. But you're not God. You don't have the wisdom. You can't make sense of it. 
your calling and mine is to trust our God who is in control and who is good. Let me, let me be honest with you, all right? This is the story of my own life. This is, you know, for whatever it's worth, this is my experience. When I was 18 years old, and this is a long time ago, right? 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, not that long for some of you, but for others, you know. No one's old in this room, by the way. All of you are just seasoned saints. You know? Anyway, when I was 18 years old, I had just graduated from high school. And this was in May of 1997. I was going to be going to college in August, so three months of the summer where I was just kind of hanging out. And I'm going to tell you something. I was very rebellious. My heart was sick and tired of my parents. I was tired of my father. He's a very good man. We're very close now. But when I was 18, not so much. I was really frustrated of having me under his authority. Honestly, it wasn't even my dad. It was God. I was tired of having to obey anyone. I didn't want to obey my dad, my mom, or my God. I wanted to rule my life on my own, my own way, with no one telling me what time to get home. You can't date that girl. You curfew. All of these rules and all these things for my own good, but I didn't want them. I wanted autonomy. I wanted sovereignty. I wanted to be in control of my little world and worship Matthew. And I didn't yet understand at 18, I would a few years later, but I didn't understand that, quite honestly, my joy would only come from delighting in Christ and having my own freedom and my sovereignty and making sense of life on my own would lead to just pain and misery and potentially even disaster. And only delighting in Christ is where true joy comes from because he is a fountain of joy itself. And I was 18, and my dad had sent me on an errand to go pick up a lady to go to church. She had a little one-year-old in her lap. This you know, back before car seats were enforced in the U.S. Here, no one cares, but... In the U.S., at least everyone's in their car seats, but back then it wasn't the case. Had a lady sitting in the passenger side with her one-year-old granddaughter, and I was driving to church, and I fell asleep. Now, I have never before or since fallen asleep driving, but I did. And this is just in the city, so it wasn't a long trip either. But I fell asleep at the wheel, driving, and I went off the road, hit a concrete ditch, went up in the air, and like due to hazard, if you don't know what that is, and almost crashed into a tree no more than two feet away, but thankfully the car stopped. I, I could have killed myself and the fellow believer and her one-year-old baby, but no one was hurt, and I don't know how. And someone stopped, picked me up, and took me to church, which was not far away. And I was just shaking. I mean, I, because this is our only car. And my dad was a pastor, didn't make very much, and I knew that he didn't have full coverage insurance. So I knew that we'd have no way to replace the car. So I already knew that I was in big trouble. And I knew instantly why. The second that I realized what had happened, I knew that God was trying to get a hold of me and shake me and say, you are not God. You can't rule your own life. I knew it the second. And I walked in to church, and they were singing. So it was an evening service. And I walked to my mom, and I, I just told her in Spanish, but I told her, I, I crashed the car, and it's really bad. And she looks at me, sweet and loving but firm, 
And all she said to me was, Matthew, God is trying to get your attention. Please learn this lesson. That's all she told me. And after the church was over, I got a tow truck and got home. And that night we're praying. And my parents were so kind to me. I wasn't grounded. I wasn't yelled at. All my dad said was, Matthew, God's trying to teach you something. And I hope you learn because that was our only car. So I don't know how we're going to you know, exist with no vehicle. And someone provided miraculously a couple of days later. And God was just so good to my family. But I didn't know that at the time. And we were praying as a family. And we were praying for God to provide for a vehicle because now we didn't have one. And so we were praying together as a family like we did most nights. And my younger brother, who was also very assertive, said, Now how am I going to get to work? He was all mad at me. And I was crying because I felt so terrible because of my sin. Now my family was going to have to suffer and struggle. And my dad said, stop it. And he stopped my brother right in his tracks and said, we are a family. We're in this together. And God has a plan for Matthew and for this family. And so no yelling, no one is angry. We're going to pray, and God's going to provide a vehicle for us. And he did. A couple of days later, someone paid for all the repairs and loaned us a vehicle. It was just very humbling for me. And that began to change my heart. At 18 years old, I realized something. Well, first of all, my parents' wisdom is just amazing because I don't know if I would have been able to do that the way they did, but I respect them tremendously. But I learned that I'm not God. And I was grasping for the fruit of sovereignty. I was grasping for the fruit of Godhood in my life, and I wanted to rule myself on my agenda, my way, and please me, and not please God. And God basically shook me and said, Matthew, the only way you're going to have any joy in this world is if you know and enjoy me, if you will obey me. Now, there are consequences to sin. And I learned a great deal, but there's more in this passage that we need to look at. Let's read in Galatians, I'm sorry, in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13, and see what happened as a result of our original father and mother's sin. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you see broken relationships with each other. Adam and Eve not need counseling. You know, they're, they're already messed up. They're blaming each other, blaming other people versus looking in the mirror and being honest about what they did. Broken friendship with God. And so what are the consequences? They're in your notes. Number one, it's guilt. The first blank. The consequence of sin is guilt. 
You see brokenness and you see guilt before a holy God. Number two, second blank there on the consequences is shame. They were naked. And in the Hebrew, the word naked and shame are the same word. So they experienced shame. This nakedness is the, the, the same word. And so they knew that they had shamed themselves before God. Number three, fear. They were hiding from God, just like you and I try to do all the time. But our attempts to hide our shame is as feeble and laughable as their attempts with fig leaves. Their fig leaves are kind of a joke to try to cover their shame with fig leaves, but we are just as foolish, and we try to run and hide from God and do things on our own, and in the end, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Because God is holy, and he shows it in judgment. And so guilt and shame and fear are all the results of our sin. And if you keep reading in chapter 3, you see God's judgment. And so you see that Adam and Eve were made for life to enjoy God and to represent him and to worship him will now taste death. They died spiritually, and now their bodies will degenerate as yours and mine does as well. And so you see God's judgment here. You see the entrance of sin, of death, and rape, and violence, and corruption, and wars were all born on the day that humans reached for Godhood. And God shows that he is holy when he judges. Number two, God displays his love. So your next blank is his love, but he shows his love through mercy. He's showing his character in these passages. If you jump in the story to verse 21, here's what it says. Then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Trinity here, knowing good and evil. Now, lest, we, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. See, there were two unique trees. The first one was one that they ate from the door, supposed to in the middle the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The other special tree was the tree of life. See, if Adam and Eve had stayed in the garden in their now corrupted, sinful state, and if they had eaten of the tree of life, then they would have lived for eternity sinful. And God could not have that because he loves humans too much to let us live in sinfulness. And so as an act of grace, Yes, also judgment, but as an act of grace, he threw them out of the garden. He threw them out. He casted them out. But you see his grace, his mercy in casting them out, but you also see it when he killed an animal. The first death was an animal who died to cover the shame, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. The animal did nothing wrong. The animal didn't sin, but God killed it. And for the first time, blood was spilled on the ground so that the shame of the king and queen, if you will, could be covered. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. This points to the ultimate lamb of God who would die of no fault of his own so that our shame could be dealt with, so that our shame could be covered and our sin dealt with, our sin, our guilt pardoned by God because Jesus was 
that substitute. So we see mercy. We see God very early on. He still loves Adam and Eve. They violated the relationship. They broke his laws. They questioned his character. They betrayed him. This is treason. All God's done is love and blast them, and all they've done is rebel and sin, and yet God loves them and cares for them. Let's move on, because this could take a very long time if we spend too much time in this passage, and it's getting close to lunchtime for many of us. Number three, God displays his faithfulness. God displays his faithfulness through promises. Verse 15, last verse we'll read today, and then we'll wrap it up. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're thinking, what is that about? This is God speaking to the serpent. This is God who is issuing judgment on the serpent. And what does he say? That there's, there's going to be enmity, so there's going to be strife. And so Satan and his dominion of evil and humans will have battles. We're enemies, clearly. But it's more than that. He says that an offspring, a child of the woman, the seed, a human being, shall bruise your head. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heels. What this is saying is that the day will come when a descendant of Eve will finally defeat and crush the head of the serpent. And yes, he's going to be injured in the process, but he's not going to stay dead, whereas Satan will be defeated. What you see here, this is the first gospel. This is the original proclamation of the promise to redeem the world. Genesis 3.15 is the veil, but very much still there, initial promise that God has a plan and he promised that one day a central figure, a man will come, born of a woman, and he will defeat the enemy and his name is Jesus and we'll celebrate his birth in a few weeks and so Christmas is about crushing the head of the serpent. Christmas is about defeating sin. Christmas is about defeating Satan and our sin, and it points to Easter, where he died on the cross for you and for me. And that is why we celebrate Christmas, because of this verse, that God promised that he would send his anointed one. And we can have hope today. We have a purpose. And if you have repented of your sins, and place your complete trust in Jesus, then you have had your sin covered by the blood of the Lamb. But if you're here today, and if you're not sure what this is all about, then we want to talk to you. I would love to meet with you and explain this further, how Jesus loves you despite your sin. He loves you, and he wants to bless you. But you must respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And if you do, then he will receive you and adopt you into his family. We have this promise. And many, many years later, God kept his promise with the baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And we'll talk more 
in the coming weeks about this same story, the same promise that is further revealed and further unpacked. And it's, it's just shown more clearly as the books of the Bible begin to progress. Going in through the prophets, we'll look at Isaiah next week and how that was pointing to Jesus and how God has kept his promise. So you can trust him. Don't, don't question him. You trust him. Whatever is ailing you today, you, you put it in God's hands and you trust him. You trust that he is good and that he is trustworthy. And as we get our hearts ready for Christmas, I pray that we won't lose the focus of what it really is about. I'm going to ask worship team, please come to the front, and I want to pray for you. And as worship team takes their places, I just want to pray that we will not lose focus this holiday season. And as you come back on Fridays and as we hear more about this developing story of promise, that you will take those truths and then go live them out every day. Father, we are truly humbled that you would speak to us, that you would give us your spirit, that you would take upon yourself our penalty by sending your son. And we thank you, Jesus, that you were that lamb, you were that substitute who died on our place. We are so unworthy, but you are worthy. We thank you that your word shows us that you are holy. It shows us that you are loved and that you are faithful. And you were displaying that character for us to see and respond with worship every day as we love you, as we trust you, and as we obey you. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for the cross. And I pray for anyone in this room that is grappling with these truths, who is trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus. I pray that you would work in their hearts. Thank you, Father. We pray this in the Son's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.